Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. I'm Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the Design Museum, and I'm joined by Liz Pollack. She's our amazing vice president. Hello, Liz. Hi, Sam. On this week's episode, we have a very cool topic. We are going to be talking about the design of outdoor open public space. I know many of you are putting on your masks and heading out to public parks to get some sun and some fresh air. And so today we'll explore how landscape architects create these outdoor spaces and experiences. We have a special guest co-host. Sherry Ruan is vice president and landscape architecture practice leader at Weston and Sampson. They're a design and engineering firm committed to improving the natural and built environment. And we have a special guest to build on that conversation. Sherry, Liz, and I will interview Chris Reed, the founding director of Stoss, which is a landscape architecture firm. Sherry and Chris, along with Julia Africa and Gary Hildebrand, co-wrote an opinion piece in the Boston Globe titled Parks Are Essential, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. So we'll dive into that for sure. Plus, of course, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. But before we get into all that good stuff, Liz, what's new at the Design Museum? Well, some exciting news. We are hiring. We are thrilled to be searching for two positions, a director of marketing who can lead our marketing and communication efforts, and we're seeking a We Design program coordinator to continue to build on and amplify our We Design program. You can find job descriptions and how to apply on our website at designmuseumeverywhere.org, and in the main menu, just click on careers. We also have another amazing Sketch Series virtual event, this time with Spencer Nugent from Sketch Day. Spencer presented his thoughts on rapid visualization and did a fun sketch demo. Here's a clip. The sketching really is, is just that cheap, low commitment way of outputting ideas. So I can grab you know, a piece of paper. You can pump out a lot of ideas very quickly. There's something encouraging, but also intimidating about a blank sheet of paper um, as it stares at you wanting to be filled but it's also encouraging because you effectively have no limits as to what you can do. And the only limit is your, ability, your imagination and your skill. You can see the full video recap on our website. Lastly, I wanted to keep on plugging Design Night Live, which is going to be a highly interactive and engaging event on September 19th. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, I know that you will love Design Night Live. The event is free for members and just $60 for non-members. And all you have to do is go to designnightlive.org to get your tickets today. It's going to be a really epic event. Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun to be together uh, while we're apart. Uh, <laughs> yes. So that's really exciting. Okay, with that, we're on to this week's topic. Parks and open spaces are always a joy to have in our lives. And particularly now during the pandemic, outdoor spaces feel absolutely essential to living our lives to the most of our ability while also keeping our distance to help stop the spread of the virus. So I'm really excited to welcome our guest co-host to talk about design and outdoor spaces. Sherry Ruan is vice president and landscape architecture practice leader at Weston and Sampson. She has 20 years of multidisciplinary experience, including special expertise with socially and politically complex site design projects and facilitating public participation, which I love. She's a longtime supporter and advisor here at the museum. Most recently, she helped us develop our Extraordinary Playscapes exhibition on design and the importance of outdoor play. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you here. All right, let's start things off. I know you're someone who thinks about parks and open space a lot. And so maybe you can trans we can transport ourselves before COVID and just talk about 
how and why public space is just so important in our lives. Um, I've had a perspective that's a little bit unique because Weston and Sampson is a multidisciplinary firm. And so we have folks that design water systems, sewer systems, electric systems, you know, the utilities and the infrastructure that, that we rely on every single day. And when I first joined the firm, I noticed that their projects always had huge budgets. And I was like, <laughs> hmm, how do you guys get all this money? And so I quickly learned about the brilliance of a ratepayer system. It's like, oh, right. There are people paying for their water and their sewer. Um, and so there is a budget. There's always a fund. And so because it is important that you turn the faucet and fresh water comes out and it's important that you flush the toilet and dirty water goes away, those are important things. Yes. Um, I would argue that parks are as important. And I think previously, before the pandemic, people understood that only if they had a park in their life that was truly improving their quality of life in a way that just wasn't available otherwise. But a lot of people have yards and there's a little bit of a disconnect about how important parks are. Um, but I will say that, you know, way back when, when Frederick Law Olmsted, um, sort of the father of landscape architecture, if you will, first started looking at places like Central Park and the Emerald Necklace. These were places that were to get respite from this dense urban environment and the day-to-day -day grind. These were intentionally designed as a place to relieve, relieve oneself of the urban condition. Um, I think that although our conditions maybe are more sanitary today than they were then, and he was actually originally a sanitary engineer, um, it's still equally important from a mental and physical health perspective that we have these outdoor spaces and also social health perspective that we have these outdoor spaces where we can be a part of humanity in a common place. There's so few spaces in the city where you don't have you have to pay every, you always have to pay to be at these places. And so exceedingly, it seems like parks are the only place where you can go and there's no expectation That's you know, right. that you're going to spend money. You can sit on a bench, you can put out a blanket, you can walk around, you can go to a playground. You can, There's so much that can be done yeah. for just free. have an experience. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, we're in a pandemic and it just seems like outdoor spaces are even more important. Um, I'm, I'm not a scientist and this is not a healthcare podcast, but it seems like it's a bit safer to be outside uh, than to be inside. And um, so it makes these spaces even more important. I know you and your co-authors wrote a great opinion piece in The Globe about some of the ways that outdoor space is like even more essential during COVID and wonder if you can share some of those. Sure. Well, I think more and more people do, and in my opinion, should view access to parks and outdoors as a right, as a basic human right. It's not a luxury. It is absolutely a basic human right. Now, as the pandemic shut all the things down, I think one avenue for maintaining people's physical and mental well-being was really parks, open spaces, and trails. We saw incredible uptick from Tennessee to South Dakota, um, you know, following along with the National Parks and Recreation sort of surveys, mm -hmm. um, those open spaces went up in vegetation rates substantially to the even to a point where the Connecticut Trail Census reported a 216% increase in use. 216%, right? So people then found themselves 
craving, needing, deserving this opportunity to be out, distanced, but out. And I think one of the things, of course, as we're all following along from home, that in fact, yes, indoor exposure is a higher and higher risk because there's mm-hmm. not fresh air, right? We're right. all breathing we're in the circulating. same air. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so as we think about that, as we look ahead to the fall and schools reopening, personally, I feel like outdoor classrooms and schoolyards are going to be an incredibly important part of how education continues in the face of this pandemic. But to the point of this uptick in use, I want to, I just want to follow on to that, um, sort of what I said earlier about the rate payer. My great hope is that with this increased usage and awareness, it's resulting in increased advocacy. And that includes funding. Do you think you could just elaborate on the benefits of parks? I, I think that would be really beneficial. What, what positive, just maybe some specifics. In addition to parks being an an avenue for people to get outdoors. There's also a factor that is play. And that's not just kids. That's play. That is the ability to go and actually play as a human, which means unplanned, um, unexpected, moving your whole body. You know, those are things that it's harder for them to happen inside. But I'd say benefits of parks. So let's just really quickly talk about physical benefits. Um, In general, exercise, really hard to do indoors frankly, about a hundred times harder to motivate to do indoors. I feel like I love all of the exercise equipment and Peloton sales are through the roof and all of that is great, but get me outside and I am so much more motivated to move my body through an environment. You know, they're now um, the Peloton and even there's a hydro version of the rowing machine that it's like you're watching rowing, like you're on the water. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I also row. So of course, does that replace rowing? No. So if I'm going to run on a treadmill and watch a a woodland trail go by, I probably would enjoy running in the woods. So I think exercise is a big component of that. Um, And as we look from adults to elderly to children, um, I think it's quite clear the immediate benefits. And so as we look at these open spaces, making sure as designers, we're thinking about a multi-generational need there right? Every age should have something to do. Um, I think also sort of an underrated and maybe sometimes sometimes comes across as a risk is sunshine. I feel like sun exposure in general, sure, if it's not managed correctly, it can lead to skin cancer. But our bodies and our brains, we need sun. We need it. Being stuck inside with no sunlight is not good for us. We are as any living thing. We really need this. I think it plays a huge role in immune systems, um, healthy sleep in our mood. I think, frankly, our bodies work best when we have sunshine every day. So I do feel like parks and open spaces are safe places to do that. Um, And socialization. I feel like that's a huge, healthy thing that happens in parks. You meet people that you never would have met. Dog park, huge networking opportunity. Playground, I always say dogs and kids, dogs and kids. (laughs) You you don't know anyone in your neighborhood, get a dog, get a kid. One is easier than the other. But um, I think, you know, really those are places where that all happens. Um, And also a connection to nature. 
you know, being city dwellers, we don't necessarily have a huge connection, but there is a lot of research and study about how important that connection is and how it improves our brain function and it improves our mood. Um, Julia Africa, who is also a co-author on that op-ed, she does a lot of study about biophilia and how it impacts your mental health. And- Absolutely. So we did a fun blog post, and it was called The Circles, that talked about uh, some of the adjustments being made in public spaces, namely, you know, adding circles to the ground to help people social distance. Sure. Uh, so what other augmentations have you seen related to the pandemic uh, and parks? So yeah, the circles is a funny one. Um, (laughs) And I think there were a few photos that were widely used that everyone saw, right? Like white circles on the lawn and people all in their little spots. Um, So most specifically in recent days, because Boston, Somerville, Cambridge, they've reopened their playgrounds in particular. I feel like that has been an especially concentrated um, example of how are parks changing. So they're not out there in hazmat suits spraying down play equipment, right? And so we've got kids, some wearing masks, some not, um, staying six feet apart. No way, it's not happening. Kids are anarchists at heart. (laughs) So I think what what we're seeing now is that it's hard to maintain these pandemic requirements in certain certain park situations. I think it's too soon to say if it's gonna change how we design playgrounds, um, but I certainly foresee, for example, pathways, walking pathway systems. Often people will say, oh, five feet's enough. Well, if you got two strollers passing, you literally are like high-fiving each other. <laughs> so maybe it's like, you know, in order to have six feet or eight feet or 10 feet, you actually need a 12 to 14 foot wide path in order to circulate. And in some parks where the paths were narrow, they put one-way arrows on the ground so nobody had to pass each other. So you had to go in a direction, um, like a skating rink. (laughs) And so I feel like those are things that we're just watching and observing um, and hoping that in some ways people navigate this and we're creative. Humans by nature will adapt. But in what ways are we might it actually impact how parks are designed moving forward? Speaking about designing <laughs> parks and uh, landscape architecture in general, I wonder if we can kind of step back. And you know, for some of our listeners who might not know what a landscape architect does, um, I can't think of anyone better <laughs> to explain it. Um, so can you share a bit about what you do, how you do it, and maybe even getting to like, how does a new park like come to be? Landscape architect is a title, frankly, a a profession that is a little bit fraught. First of all, it's a mouthful. Nobody wants to say landscape architect. Um, Also, the word landscape evokes um, landscape contracting and maintenance. More than one Thanksgiving dinner, I've been asked how many mowers I own. (laughs) So there's a misconception about what landscape architects do. But I will tell you that landscape architects analyze, plan, design, manage, and nurture built and natural environments. That's sort of the broad brush, right? But the reason that I became a landscape architect is because of the positive impact our work has on communities and quality of life. So what we do at Weston and Sampson very consciously and very deliberately is we design parks, campuses, streetscapes, trails, plazas, 
things that help define a community, really everything outside the buildings. Um, there are certainly landscape architects that focus on residential work, but really you'll even note in private developments that are happening now that that are going up in the seaport in East Boston. Um, there's a lot of buildings with common areas and everything outside those buildings is what landscape architects are looking at. So it truly is the fabric of these cities and towns that need to be addressed and considered in ways that, that need to be designed with people as the subject. So I work with a lot of engineers and scientists and they're awesome. They design for the drop of water, the live load, the vehicle, the loading dock, the we design for the people, right? Our focus is people. And so as we look at the built environment, we're constantly asking ourselves, how are people gonna use this, move through this, feel safe, commune, socialize, play, engage? And that's literally what drives a lot of our design decisions. I think if that was the description I heard as a child, I would have become a landscape architect. <laughs> that is so well said. A lot of people tell us that. So we're trying to get into more K through 12 and like <laughs> pound the pavement, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's beautiful though. So just one last question is how do you balance the natural and built environment, you know, particularly as you're thinking about the urban setting? As you guys well know, there's a lot of different things at play, especially in an urban environment where the site was probably once something else. In Boston, it was probably ocean or mudflat or salt marsh. <laughs> Odds are super high. And also, as we start to look at how sites function, the harder cities get with building roofs and sidewalks and streets paved, stormwater doesn't have anywhere to go. And so as we look at those spaces outside buildings, we're starting to consider um, how do you reuse these spaces, not only for people, how do you also consider the drop of water and all the other things that I just mentioned get engineered and, and scienced into our designs? Um, it is an incredibly layered approach. There is not a simple project that exists, I don't think, any longer. You know, you don't find a perfect plot of just uncontaminated, yeah, whatever you want, <laughs> do whatever you want. You're responding to context and you're also responding to the history and the people and the place. We always say that you shouldn't be able to take the design of a park and, and plop it down anywhere else. It should not work anywhere else. It should only work here because it's so inherently grounded in the natural and physical and social systems of that place. Um, it would, it just wouldn't be right. You know, it'd be like the Taco Bell of, of landscape. You don't, that's not, we want to make sure that each of them truly are responding to the context in order to, um, in order to be as useful and improve quality of life at the highest possible level. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Sherry. That's really good. Great. Thank you. Listeners, check out Weston and Samson for information on Sherry and her team's work at westonandsampson.com. The Weston and Samson Design Studio is leading the Boston Common Master Plan, as Sherry mentioned, and we'll talk about more of that in our next segment. So Sherry, please stay with us and we'll bring Chris Reed from Stoss into our conversation. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. 
Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month, and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back and we're joined by a special guest. Chris Reed is the founding director of STAS, a pioneering design firm focused on creating resilient social spaces that foster vitality, equality, and community within the public realm. Chris is a leading voice in the transformation of landscapes and cities, so we're very pleased to have him join us for this conversation. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. Uh, pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I had mentioned at the top that you, Sherry, and uh, a pair of others uh, wrote an opinion piece in the Boston Globe about how parks are essential, especially during the pan pandemic. We talked a little bit with Sherry about this, but I'd be curious, like, what prompted you all to, to write that piece? Uh, Sherry really prompted it. Um, she came to me, she came to Gary. It seemed like she and Julia Africa had been starting to talk about this and really talking about parks relative to public health uh, as COVID was dawning on us. Um, and uh, Sherry came to me and Gary because we are all working on different park projects across uh, the city of Boston. Gary Hildebrand's firm on Franklin Park, Sherry on uh, the Common, and Stoss is working actually with Weston Sampson on Mokley Park. Um, and Sherry thought it a really great idea to have the three leads on Boston's most prominent park projects to collaborate on this. So we have Sherry to thank for that. Um, from my perspective, um, parks were immediately becoming a lifesaver in so many ways. Um, as, as things were shutting down, everybody was working from home and everybody was being encouraged to stay inside as much as possible parks and particularly large parks and park systems became the one place where people were allowed out where we could finally go get some fresh air get some exercise and frankly just get some reprieve from our studies and living rooms and dining rooms and bedrooms and kids and dogs and guinea pigs and all that kind of stuff that was going on uh, around us and stop looking at screens um, i think it's that it was the thinking about parks as critical infrastructure and that now is the time to be paying attention and realizing that they're an incredibly important public system and that they can't be thought of as a luxury. They literally need to be thought of as a civic right um, because without that thinking, then there won't be funding and there won't be resources and then they won't be serving the people. Boston, like many other cities, has been very inventive recently in the way in which it could turn small scale properties into new open spaces um, and really uh, do that in neighborhoods that where that was most needed, disadvantaged neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. What COVID brought to light 
was the importance of pairing those small scale investments with large scale investments. Because as you all know, it was those small parks and playgrounds that were closed down in the early phases. And it exposed uh, long-term, very long-term systemic uh, gaps. Yeah, I'd love to hear from both of you about, you know, how do you design for equity in public spaces? You know, access seems just so critical and right now in particular. Sometimes you start with the project and the location, right? So the fact that Moakley Park is immediately adjacent to two different public housing developments uh, for low-income folks. How do you say, okay, our outreach needs to be geared toward those communities and figuring out how do we better engage those communities? Because oftentimes those communities are struggling for just access to food and education and basic services, right? They're not going to go to an evening meeting to talk about a park or open space project. So how do we actually go to the places uh, where, where these folks are so that we can engage them in places that they're comfortable on their schedules, not ours. A third way to do that is to figure out how do you program for the people who are there first before you start to program for other waves of people that you might also want to access uh, the space. So when you say people who are there first, you're talking about the people who live in proximity to maybe walking proximity to a park. In this case, yes. So Moakley Park's a good example. It's it's mostly baseball fields right now um, and a small flex field and small playgrounds. All of Moakley Park is separated by four to six lanes of traffic from those two public housing developments that I talked about. So it's a challenge to get across the street. And then when you get across the street, the question is, what is there for me as a resident of those communities, right? Very few things. Um, so when we say program, we're, we're thinking, what's a different mix of activities that need to happen in a place that could better address and better serve the people who are already there? There are also things you can do with um, art and design and representation. Um, sometimes, um, Having um, cultural symbols that are recognizable um, to the different social and cultural backgrounds of potential park users is really important. So a great example of that is, um, does um, a space that has a whole series of monuments of white men resonate if you're a black kid from the inner city? Or can that resonate more if you have sculptures of women, uh, sculptures of African-American people? That sheer representation, do I see myself in the representation of this place? I have COVID on my mind. Everyone does. We can't, like, can't let it go. Um, and the whole notion of parks as like flexible space within an urban environment, uh, you had mentioned in the article and, you know, you've seen photos around the U.S., like even Central Park of like using the, the park as like a field hospital. And now I can imagine open space being flexible just by the organic nature of it being open space. But I wonder if there's like design decisions 
that could be made maybe in like sort of the future of parks that design decisions could be made to be more intentional about that kind of like flex space. Let's use the field hospital as an example, just because it was such a visual and impactful scene is that the deployment of infrastructure, specifically water, sewer, and electricity across a park. It's not like we want permanent buildings across our parks. That absolutely is the antithesis of what we want. However, if you do want to use them more flexibly, even beyond pandemic, but for street fairs and festivals and protests and rallies and all these other things, what's the infrastructure that you need to support that well? And I think it all was heightened around this thought of a hospital because you thought, oh, well, you're going to need running water and you're going to need, you know, all these things that you wouldn't have needed before. So strategizing about how you can make these open spaces plug and play that you don't need permanent structures across the park to make them flexible and usable. You actually need less above ground, but more below ground. So that what's happening under the ground is actually incredibly complicated, but very agile and flexible as these different uses pop up. Yeah. A good example of that at a small scale um, is the plaza in front of the Science Center at Harvard that we designed a few years back. And uh, there, the university and the city were interested in creating a flexible space for different kinds of events to happen and, and, and activities. And on the one hand, we could work with them to imagine the layouts of the number of these different activities, right? And, and use that and predict, okay, for this kind of event, whether it's a performance or food trucks or a big farmer's market or an art festival, here are the different ways you could configure those uses. And we would essentially build the design around that, right? But, um, and then you look at the space when it's empty and it just looks like an open plane of pavers, really quite simple. But underneath those pavers, as Sherry was saying, in this case, were a grid of, uh, on 10 by 10 foundations uh, that you could plug any number of different tent configurations into. There are a number of different locations scattered around the plaza for power, for water, the same kinds of utility hookups that Sherry was, was, was articulating. And all of a sudden, you know, on the one hand, the plaza is being used in some of the ways we anticipated, but also now that the project has a life of its own, People are learning how to use it. The, the university set up an office to help run and program it. They're now reinventing all sorts of different uses. And that's the whole idea. It's like we need to be able to program and design for things we can imagine and for uh, those we can't imagine. Chris, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as we talk about um, flexibility of space, there's this, this group of humans that are not kids anymore, and yet they're not fully adults yet. And previously, I feel like park design really just threw a basketball court at them and said, what do you mean you're not happy with this? But I feel like in the vision plan for Mokley, Stoss has really thought about a bunch of different things that can be a venue for people to occupy open space safely, creatively, and more fun. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that. It, it came about through conversation um, and making sure that we talked to folks who are 11 to 18. Um, a lot of that space 
<laughs> is really organized around the idea of hanging out. Just where do I go to hang out, right? When I don't want to do something and I don't want to go to the playground and I don't want to be in a field, like I just want to hang out with my friends, right? So how can we create these kind of informal nooks um, with seating and other elements that just allow people to hang out and 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 they're sometimes tucked in, you know, they're not they're not right in the middle of something, they're just off to the side. And they create these nice little clusters scattered throughout for people to just um, some projects we're looking at groves with hammocks or swings that are just about quiet, lazy days and, and that sort of thing. Sometimes they're sort of adjacent to another activity or, you know, at Moakley, it might be one that's close by to the um, deck hockey rink or close by to the basketball or. Yeah, I think too. One thing that I like about the vision plan that we've seen in parks we've worked on is the incorporation of skateboarding. In some places, we've added parkour. Um, the fact that the courts that you were talking about earlier, you know, they're multi-use. All of the things that can work into these spaces that start to bridge the gap between the playground, right, which is the boring post and platform with the ship's wheel and the tic-tac-toe board, which isn't compelling to, um, you know, the loop path that the grandmother walks around. And I feel like the introduction and the thinking about adventure play in a way that bridges beyond the five to 12 year older kid play group, um, that's really important. And it becomes a place that kids hang out. Yeah. And for those unfamiliar with what adventure play is, adventure play is an idea of playgrounds that, that give kids more space to run and frankly, add, add a little bit more fun and risk into those environments, but do so in very careful ways. So again, it's like we've got a small area for toddlers and kids just beginning to move about and that's scaled in, in a certain way. And then another age group, which is five to 11, right? But then actually having some spaces where older kids can climb into the tree canopy, can, you know, um, uh, descend a, a wire or, or have hills and other uh, climbing um, uh, apparatus that actually does have a little bit more risk, but, but allows them to do what big kids can do. Another question that I just wanted to put out there as you were describing what it means to be an adventure playground, uh, let's talk a little bit about what it means to have a master plan or master planning. What is that? A master plan in many ways, or, or a vision plan, as, as Mokley was called, is really a, a, a roadmap or a guide to future development. Um, it sets out, uh, okay, what are the goals that we need to accomplish here? Um, how do we think about program and activity? So what are the combinations of uses? Uh, with locally, it, it was also something that, that needed to take on the issue of climate change because um, there is projected sea level rise and flooding, not only of the park, but of some of the neighborhoods around the park. So how is it that the park was going to function to protect those neighborhoods uh, from that flooding eventually? Um, so in that sense, we're identifying all the issues that are in play in a project, right? Um, we're beginning to identify access issues and safety issues. Like how do you get to the park, right? When you're crossing from, uh, the, uh, uh the 
adjacent neighborhoods. And so you start to put all these things together. It gives you a roadmap for how all the things that need to happen as the park begins to um, be designed and developed uh, in the future. So it would include, I assume it would have drawings, it would have you know, things written down, kind of be a report, multi-page. Yep. It, it includes multiple kind of visuals. Visuals, it includes, I mean, some of it's like an accounting, detailed accounting of program spaces, um, right? Uh, it's, it's recordings of all the public engagement that we have done and where those ideas were coming from and what we're hearing from residents and other stakeholders in the project. Uh, it's an identification of, of all the potential project partners and all the public agencies that are involved. I think, too, it's it's always the goal is to have it be really aspirational. You want there to be a lot of excitement around what's possible in this place and the vision plan or the action plan or the master plan as they've been named by um, for various projects. I think they have to really inspire the the possibility of a place. And as Chris was saying, you know, there are a lot of different agencies and disciplines that go into these complicated master plans. So what I like to refer to as interdependent design teams are critical. Interdisciplinary, it feels like there are multiple disciplines and we're and we're relating to each other, but interdependent stresses the fact that we actually are all relying on one another and all of these projects are being led by landscape architects. So we are the ones that are um, making sure that everything is moving in concert. Yeah, I want to, and maybe we could finish with that kind of interconnectedness um, and interdependency. And as a final question for both of you, because you, and you both have mentioned in our first conversation and this like this unique moment that Boston is in, what is the benefit for residents, for the city overall, that we're in this unique moment that these things are being envisioned and developed in parallel? I would offer that the there's a couple of benefits. One is there's a collective um, momentum and thinking around public open space in a really meaningful way, not just around one space in one geographic location, but three significant ones in very different parts of the city. And it's got the attention of a lot of different departments, not only within the city, but state and federal. So that there is, I, f- I feel like the momentum behind the three projects running together is giving us something that is synergistic. You have a significant component of our Olmsteadian landscape and and, um, uh, landscape system, uh, the Emerald Necklace, and to be reinvesting in the biggest piece of that that lies in Roxbury and Dorchester, where again, you have some of the most disadvantaged, most impacted communities is significant. It's both hitting issues of social equity and this gem, this unique gem that that, um, uh, Boston has, this this landscape legacy in in Olmsted, to show how you develop an integrated landscape solution that helps to mitigate climate change, but also creates uh, other social, environmental, and economic 
benefits. That's the value of Milkley Park. So to have a city hitting all of those points simultaneously is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you so much, Chris, for being here. Happy to be here. Listeners, check out Chris and his team's work at Stas. Uh, they do all kinds of work in the built and natural environment. Their website is stas.net. And we'll be sure to post a link to Sherry and Chris's and their co-author's article in the Boston Globe. And now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Liz, how about you kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for my daughter's birthday, she got a dollhouse and it's right out of uh, my childhood dreams. It has three floors and a center staircase and doors that open. And as my husband and I were putting it together the other night, uh, I took all the furniture out and I staged the house to get it ready for the big reveal. And I realized that this is just another example of kids designing from a young age. Right? Kids all over are spending countless hours arranging and rearranging spaces. Uh, they're setting them up with certain storylines and experiences. And, you know, many of them are adding their own twist, you know, even adding colors to the walls or extra pieces of furniture or decoration that, you know, adults would never uh, think of. And it just makes me smile because they are loving design and honestly, probably not even realizing it. So, you know, I'm thinking hopefully that through this podcast, we can start to arm parents with that vocabulary that, you know, even a dollhouse is actually a really great tool for exploring uh, design for our kiddos. Yeah, I love it. All right. So this week I'm talking about task management, which is a lot less fun than a dollhouse. But for my entire career, I've been seeking the optimal system for tracking projects and tasks. So I've tried them all from like Todoist, OmniFocus, Things, Wonderlist. I've tried every to-do app that exists under the sun. I saw this really cool uh, project on Kickstarter. It's called Analog, and it's by a designer named Jeff Sheldon. So it's got this like beautiful like wooden case that becomes a base. Yeah, that stores the cards. And then, you know, the today card actually like fits in and displays really nicely, which I think is the best part because using digital to-do apps, like they're hidden, right? You've got a window over it, and this is just like right front and center. And so pairing that with like the beautiful materials and like the overall design uh, is really cool. So it's on Kickstarter. He does not need our help because it is so overfunded. It's amazing. Um, but we'll still, we'll post the Kickstarter uh, link. There's still 24 days to go. Uh, so you can make a pledge and get the analog system. All right, Sherry, you are up. All right. Well, I debated a few different things. You know, I felt like there was a lot of pressure, but um just hearing your two pretty personal versions, um, it's pretty clear that I have to talk about sewing. So I started making masks because the pandemic and people were like, oh, it's so great. You knew how to sew. No, no, didn't know how to sew. Um, had a brother sewing machine in my basement that I bought 10 years ago with the intention of making t-shirt quilts for my family didn't. So pandemic hits, um, 
still new in box, 10 year old brother sewing machine. So I start sewing, make a bunch of masks, really get into it. Um, and then start to fall in love with really beautifully designed fabrics, which have become a bit of an addiction for me to buy. And I discovered this woman, Carolyn Friedlander, who I believe used to be a landscape architect or still is. Her fabrics are topography plans and planting plans and the most beautiful, amazing fabrics. Thanks, Sherry. Awesome. And uh, thank, thank you both. Those are both really great. Thank you again to Sherry Ruan and Chris Reed for joining us this week. You can check out some of the resources we discussed on our episode page at designmuseumeverywhere.org. And hey, be sure to spend some time outside in the days ahead and wear a mask. <laughs> yes, and be sure to check out the job openings that I mentioned at the start of the show. If you think you'd be a great fit, apply. And if everyone could just share the opportunities, that would be really awesome as well. Also, be sure to get your tickets for Design Night Live, our virtual event on September 19th. If you're a member, you get to come for free. And if you're not a member, tickets are just $60 and then you also get a membership that goes with it, which is pretty great. Uh, it's going to be a super fun night and you don't wanna miss it. Yeah, so you get a ticket to this awesome event, you get a membership and you get Design Museum Magazine. I mean, it's like, All for $60 why not? for the yeah, whole year. Come on. I love it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on social media. Like us and follow us. Uh, we're on Twitter at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching design museum everywhere. And as always, be sure to subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate us and leave us a review that really helps people find our new show. Yes, it does. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by David Green. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at the Design Museum, thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone.